On behalf of the National Public Housing Museum, thank you for tuning in to our oral history audio listening series, Out of the Archives. In each episode, we will share a diverse range of stories told by public housing residents from our oral history archive. Stories make up the backbone of any culture. They tell us who we are and where we are from. They create empathy and understanding. They allow us an opportunity to share experiences and learn words from others. The stories in our archive lift the voices of an oftentimes marginalized community and creates a space for the important conversations to happen. Here at the museum, we firmly believe in the power and importance of everyday stories and their ability to expand and redefine our understanding of American history. Our mission is to preserve, promote, and propel the right of all people to a place where they can live and prosper, a place to call home. We hope that this collection of stories not only reinforces that belief, but can shed light on an American experience that is all too often left unheard. In this episode, Black is Beautiful too. Reflections on family, activism, and perseverance. We celebrate Black History Month by continuing the narrative from our June 2020 episode by the same name, which highlights stories from the Black community. You'll hear about one storyteller's development as a community organizer, finding strength and family in the face of difficulties, and more. The storytellers from this episode include J.R. Fleming, who lived in Cabrini-Green from 1976 to 1984, and in Henry Horner Homes from 1984 to 1989. Michael Miles, who lived in Stateway Gardens from 1978 to 2006. Demetrius Bonner, who lived in Stateway Gardens from 1958 to 1987. Colette Payne, who lived in Ida B. Wells Homes from 1980 to 1986. Dolores Van Pelt, who lived in Cabrini Green Homes from 1972 to 1975. Davida Rowley Blackman, who lived in New York City Tenement Building in 2003. The story spanned from 1958 to 2006. Willie Jake. R. Fleming. The J is for just, the R is for righteousness. Man, my sisters, they, they were just like, and, and my brother, my mom, and them, they was the world to me. Like, they always going to be the world to me, right? My father made sure I was a protector, provider, right? I was that person growing up with my sisters and my mom. So, I mean, I, I think I embodied that, and it carried on into my organizing activism and business ventures in the future. Um, we celebrated all of the traditional holidays and of course you got to throw in the biggest holiday in our family is Black History Month and Kwanzaa, right? Um, uh, I think it's during them times when we remember who we are or where we know who we are we remember from which we came the struggle how we got to where we are and we appreciate the privileges that we might have, right? Uh, even growing up in public housing, you know, uh, we were the same way. Uh, I, I think the lessons that a lot of my sisters and brothers and my, well, my, my sisters, brothers, and my mother and them told me um, was to give back, not make it about self all the time, right? Um, learn to help others. And the, the more than anything, learn to adjust when shit don't go your way, when shit ain't right. You know what I'm saying? When people tell you you're wrong and you know the facts are saying you're right, 
how to persevere. So perseverance, dedication, determination, um, inspiration, motivation, them are the things that come to mind when I think of my family, brothers, sisters, and my siblings, and my mother and father. I, I, I think of them things that inspire me. Um, Deep-rooted in principles and values. So, yeah, um, them are some of the greatest lessons I learned. People talk about what you like the most about just living somewhere. I want to talk about what I like the most about being somewhere, because I'm always in Cabrini. I still work over there, right? And I tell people I don't have to live there to care for them, right? I don't have to be there to care for them, right? When you have a sense of community and a sense of belonging to a community, you know, whether you're there or not, you're going to be care, you're going to have care, concern, and you're going to make some type of investment on making sure the place that you once called home will always be a home for you, whether you're there or not. Yeah. And so the work we do today with our coalition, uh, we're making sure residents, you know, current, former, past residents are still protected by the consent decree. Uh, we've increased jobs and contracts opportunities in the neighborhood, have several contracts over there in our own neighborhood um, through a couple companies we run uh, with some resident-owned businesses and section three companies from over there. Um, so we're still doing our nonprofit activity, fighting for our residents' right, providing, you know, PPE, providing resources to the residents, uh, um, gift cards, you know, you know, everything. You know, we're still doing what we're supposed to do for the hood, like the hood did for us, you know. Um, the, our biggest hope for community is what we're doing right now, to be a part of the redevelopment of our community and to manage our community when it's redeveloped. So we're still on course. So, you know, our history is a living history in Cabrini Green, you know? So I want folks to be confused about this oral history being the history of J.R. Cabrini Green. No, this is a living history, you know? You know, our, our life is a living work, you know? So that's what it is for me. I'm Michael Miles. I come from the development of Stateway Gardens. I was actually born in one of the buildings during a snowstorm in 1978. Um, I've been there the majority of my life. I moved out, came back, and I've been working in the community for quite some time. I stayed around because I love the people who I grew up with, and I saw that there was a need for services that other people weren't giving, so I decided to step up and be able to provide that for the community. Well, in the community where I stay, I noticed that there was a lack of services for youth, for example, and a lack of senior programs. So right now, I currently am not the provider in the development I live in. I work in other developments, actually. Right now, I'm actually the project coordinator for scattered sites through the Ross Grant. But in my community, I am the resident liaison. I am overseeing all the different community activities that take place there. So I am the one who goes out and gets donations and do it, does the setup, gets volunteers for different events that I host for the youth in the community. So I host Halloween parties for the youth every year. I host an annual Christmas party for the youth. I do the same thing with Easter. And then during the summer, I set up different trips for the youth to go to Brookfield Zoo, Navy Pier, and different things like that. And I also do an annual back to school community event as well. And for seniors, I also assist them with programming. 
Um, I assisted them with the setup of the senior group they have there. They do an annual party as well, their annual fundraiser. They do bingos every month and other activities. So I partake and participate in all of those things as well. Well, when I was just a resident, I was young then, so I didn't understand what giving back was. I just did things because I was told to. So my mom was also a resident leader. She was the vice president of the development in which I lived in. And before that, she was building president. So she made us do things. When I wanted to be outside having fun, she had us sitting up doing different events with her that she was working on. And eventually, as I got older, I started to fall in line. So I volunteered for the local advisory council that was in Stateway Gardens under her and Francine Washington there for quite a f long time. So I started volunteering there in 1999, and my last year was when they closed in the, at the end of 2006, when the development closed. We were the last two families to move out. My mom, Arville Mouse, also known as Rare Francine Washington, the last two families to move out. So that's when the volunteer for Stateway stopped. But then I started volunteering for the Central Advisory Council and continued to do things in the development when it resurfaced. My name is Colette Payne. Sort of felt like we were middle class. Both my parents worked. Um, my father had his own dance studio, the Jimmy Payne School of Dance, and my mother was a legal aid secretary, amongst other things. She was um, a teacher. She taught piano, Bible study. Um, and she also tutored children. Um, so, yeah. And um, every week we would go to my grandma's house um, in the projects, which the projects to me were the best ever. <laughs> like, it was like so much fun. Um, because my cousin stayed there. My grandma, my great grandmother lived with my grandmother. And um, it was just a beautiful place growing up. I remember um, they had their own newspaper. Um, they had a sense of community and everyone in that community looked out for each other's children. So for example, I couldn't do anything down the street that my grandma didn't already know about by the time I made it home because it was some like a somewhat like a connection. They would be on the phone. Hey, your granddaughter's down here doing such and such. And I got scolded on the way. And when I got home, I knew I was going to get scolded. Like, hey, go and pull a switch off that bush right there. And you better not pick the smallest switch because it's going to hurt the most. Right. Um, but anyway, the projects were, to me, were beautiful. What I remember most about those times as a younger child growing up is um, my grandma's garden and how the lawns were kept and that we were able to sleep in the park across the street because she stayed like on 37th Street. Cross Street was Cottage Grove. And then it was like made into like an S curve that led to Vincennes so she stayed in the middle the beginning of Cottage Grove blocks and that block and at the end was Vincennes um, we would sleep in the park and um, 
the neighbor, my grandma, her neighbors, they would sit on the porch and drink beer and listen to the radio and watch us play in the park. Dolores Van Pelt. I always was different. I was the oldest for one thing. So, and I read a lot. That makes a world of difference. Yes. So, and because I did, I was familiar with a lot of things that they never would have uh, learned about because it just wasn't common in, in the neighborhood. People have to live the way they think is best for them and their children. You know, and we, we all have a different idea about what's best for us. Now that being, my lifestyle perhaps would not have been for anybody else that I know. You know I didn't, I, I wasn't the kind that was out a lot. But they did things, I'm sure, that I wasn't interested in, and that's good. Oh, because I, I know that that's, it's not something, it was a gift, I think, for me to be, want to do that and go out and do those things. And not, not everybody want to move. And they shouldn't. You, sh you should be where you're happy at, no matter what nobody else is doing. Because if you're doing something just because somebody else is doing it, you're going to be unhappy. That's true. Life's too short for that. They're going to eventually take all of that away. And there's going to be more people living in there with higher income. That's what I believe is going to happen. I think sometimes they allow us to be a placeholder. You know, we stay there. Yeah, they can stay here now. And then uh, we, get, we get to that land, that spot later. And why do you think sometimes they do that? Well, the only other choice they had was for it to be vacant, and whoever owned it wouldn't be getting any money for a vacant apartment. Yeah. So, and they can't change everything at one time. Now, that's not to say that the people who come in might be prejudiced or, you know, don't care about black people, because that's not true. You can't say any one group is all one thing, all prejudice. That's not true. There are white people that would die for you and me as they would a white person. Mm -hmm. So we are all different, and, and that's okay. Demetrius Bonner, when I went up to the school to check on her, I knew she was gonna be very bright and moving on up, right? Go to the school, and it's nothing like I remember. Well, first thing is the teachers are not there. The same teachers are not there, so you can't get the same thing, right? But the Groundwork has already been laid. They destroyed that groundwork and redeveloped something else. So when you ask me where's Mel, those schools like it was in my day, it's no more. We have to reinvent that. So we have a program called NADA, organization called the National Alliance of the Descendants of Enslaved Africans. And um, uh, what we do is we're trying to take over these schools that have been closed down in our communities and re-educate uh, people on true history and not just his story, right? The real story, the truth about our past. This is going to be so empowering, right? But to ask where those schools are, 
they're gone. I give you an example, but I live off 44th and Drexel now, right across the street from King High School where I grew up. And when I went there, I couldn't even be on that side of the street, right, because of gang activity. But anyway, there's a grammar school on that campus called Price School. And grammar school, when the gentrification started, they took the, made the children get out of that school. But then they started training dogs in that school. The hurting part for me is my youngest kids are in college or working, right? My youngest daughter's 25. At, the, at that time, she was 19 in college. And I'm out here marching, fighting for them not to close the school. But every day I'm walking these, watching these women walking their children to the bus to be bussed out of their own community to go to schools in somebody else's community. And I'm so upset that I'm screaming at them, do you understand the struggle of your people? Do you understand we're going backwards in time? Schools were placed strategically in these different neighborhoods to protect children. You gotta remember there was rapists, robbers, and then the Kutsa Klux Klan was snatching black folks off the street, killing them, on top of the police killings. You know, hence we had to have the police come from our own community because our men were fed up. They were big, bulky men, and they wasn't having it no more. So the police had to come from somebody that you knew. You know, it couldn't be white police. And the white police usually was the tough police, right? And they just got beat up when the young guys got older you know, or transferred, you know. Some white cops, I'm not saying all cops are bad. But here's my question. If there are some good cops, where are they at when the bad cops are around? And why aren't they pointing out who the bad cops are if they're so good, right? That has nothing, that has not, what has changed in time is the color barrier. See, we don't understand it police come from slave catchers. That's where they first originated from, right? So to say where's those schools, those schools are left in us, inside of us at this age, the baby boomers who went to those different schools. You know, you can, you can have the same story from all over the country, all over the city rather. And uh, you just go on the west side and you can hear something by my brother-in-law from the west side. And he can tell you the same thing. He went to one school that was pretty good and they were transferred to another school. It's like going to hell, you know? So the whole thing is about aggressively understanding uh, growing up in Chicago, especially in public housing. Davida Riley Blackman. I have good memories of the time that I was in public housing. Um, very, you know, neighbor, friendly kind of environment, definitely had its strifes, but there was a lot of community, a lot of supporting each other, um, looking out for one another. So like I said, I was only there for a short time, but um, I found a lot of positivity there. So I stayed with my son's dad and um, his sister and his mother. His mother is like one of my favorite people to this day. Um, she's just very loving, very loving environment, very caring, um, the kind of neighbor or person in the community that like looks out for everyone and is very welcoming with her home. 
um, you know, had a great impact on me and, and helping me become the woman that I am. Um, and I really, from that experience, and it wasn't until years later that I even knew that people had a certain view of public housing. That wasn't something in my mind when I was growing up. Um, but years later, you know, I still stand by from the example of her, like how many, how, how great the people in public housing are and, you know, everything they do to contribute to the city. You know, there were definitely things that I didn't see growing up in like my normal private building, for lack of a better term, um, that, you know, I did see in public housing. Just the conditions I think are very evident. I think when, when you're younger, it's not as big of a deal. But now that I'm older and, and able to comprehend and put into context what I was experiencing and seeing, I'm like that, you know, there are some things that were not quite normal just as far as, and it wasn't universal across, um, you know, the development that I stayed in, but there were definitely groups of folks that were, um, you know, engaged in certain types of activities or just the cleanliness was definitely a big a, a thing, something that struck me that I eventually got used to. And, and for that reason, um, I'm sorry. I definitely um, got used to, and so I didn't think it was abnormal, but just certain situations like, you know, having a drunk neighbor sleeping in the hallway overnight, like that wasn't something that I necessarily saw growing up, but that I ended up experiencing while I was in public housing. Big males, really big males. My family's from the South, Alabama, Mississippi. Um, so all of the macaroni and cheese and collard greens and chicken and all of that kind of stuff, like really big meals, definitely a fun time. Um, as a kid, a lot of, you know, being excited when the holidays were coming because knowing that family would be around um, and it wasn't like your normal day to day. So you would get to kind of get away with more things because there were so many people around, but they kind of weren't paying attention. Um, but also like having to go to the store a hundred times <laughs> to get different <laughs> items for the meal. Um, so that's kind of what I remember about the holidays. Once again, the National Public Housing Museum thanks you for listening to the episodes of Out of the Archives. The series is supported by the Institute of Museum and Library Services, the Illinois Arts Council Agency, Illinois Humanities, the Kresge Foundation, and the Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events. This episode was engineered by Seth Engel. We'd like to give a huge thanks to our storytellers, Demetrius Bonner, J.R. Fleming, Michael Miles, Colette Payne, Davida Rowley Blackman, and Dolores Van Pelt as well as the members of the oral history court and other oral historians who helped to gather these stories, including Shakira Johnson, Frank McFadden, and Kelly Staxel. Thank you again for listening. We hope you have a happy Black History Month, and we look forward to sharing more stories with you next month. <laughs>